Hey everyone, it is Zoe Blasky. Welcome back to Motherkind, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of motherhood and life with more self-awareness, ease, joy and purpose. Thank you if you come back every week to listen, learn and feel inspired. If you love the podcast, do me a favour and hit subscribe. It really does help. So it's the 29th of December. We are in that weird bit between Christmas and New Year. I imagine if you're like us, then you're still out of routine and there's tons of unstructured time, just being in the house together. And I actually find that really challenging. I find I have to work quite hard at enjoying just being at home with no plans. It definitely doesn't come naturally to me. But I do love the energy of New Year. I love a vision board for the year. I love thinking about what I want more of in my life. I don't do resolutions. I actually really hate that term resolution because resolution means the act of solving a problem or finding a way to improve a difficult situation. Well, my life isn't a problem to be solved and neither is yours. So I prefer thinking about this simple question. What do I want more of in 2023? I feel like that is such a more empowering, positive question than something to resolve. Resolve to me is something that needs fixing. It's that problem. And that's not accurate, is it? So what do you want more of in 2023? Here's what I want more of in 23. I want more fun. I want more time with my friends. I want more experimentation. I want to try new things. I want to have a beautiful, expansive celebration for my 40th in May. I want to enjoy, not endure, not endure the marathon I'm doing in April. Uh, I want to connect even more deeply with the girls and guy and I want to grow this platform and reach more and more mothers. I'll be chatting over on Insta, Zoe.Blasky, tons about this new year energy and really simple, quick things that we can do to start to think about ourselves for the year ahead. It is so easy as mothers to forget about ourselves and what we want. And new year is just a great time to plug into that and to think about it. So I'm going to be over on Instagram giving you loads of tips and ideas and love to hear what you guys want more of in 23. So head over to zoe.blasky. So onto the episode. As you know, if you are a regular listener in December, we re-release the most popular episodes from the year. And this week's guest is the amazing Matt Frey. If you loved the episode, then I think you're going to love listening to it again. And if you haven't heard it, you are in for a treat. You guys loved this episode when it was first released in September. In fact, it's one of the most downloaded of the year and I totally get why. Matt talks so brilliantly about marriage and how over time, it's often not one big thing that creates distance between partners, but the micro, tiny daily actions that add up. Matt had this amazing experience. So he knew he loved his wife. He knew he was a good guy. And one day out of nowhere, according to him, his wife came and asked him for a divorce. So he has spent, I think, over a decade unpacking what happened. And he wrote a now viral article called My Wife Divorced Me Because I Left Dishes by the Sink. And then a best-selling book called This Is How Your Marriage Ends. And what he learned 
And what he shares in this episode is that it is those small habits and dynamics that add up and erode trust and safety over time. He says that he sees now how much he invalidated his wife's experience. And every time he left those dishes by the sink, what he was really saying, he realizes was, I don't love you enough to put myself out for a few minutes to clean these dishes up or put them away. And over the years, that, he says, is what caused the end of his marriage. It's absolutely fascinating. In this episode, Matt reveals those habits that kill relationships and the opposite, how to build that trust, safety and lifelong love. I hope you love it, whether you're listening to the for the first or second time. Here it is. So Matthew, I wanted to start by reading something that you wrote as a way to really set the stage and the tone for this conversation. You said, virtually everyone is affected by the negative consequences of shitty marriages and divorce. The information and life skills required for people to participate effectively in healthy, sustainable romantic relationships appear to be missing from the majority of people's skill sets and vocabularies. It's nobody's fault. It's our responsibility, of course, but it's not our fault. Neither our parents nor our grandparents taught us these things or even talked about them in a way that prepared us for the rigors of adult relationships. But don't blame them, please. No one taught them either. If I had to distill the problems in failed relationships down to one idea, it would be our colossal failure to make the invisible visible. Tell me what you meant by that. Growing up, you grow up. And I should really just speak for me, but I think I'm also speaking for everybody you're a child and you're around older people. And it seemed that everybody in my life, when they were of a certain age, began dating and are coupling up in a marital or forever kind of way. Yeah, you see it on TV. The thought just manifests, this is what you do when you grow up. It felt like we didn't even have a choice in the matter. This is just what you do. Part of growing up and part of adulthood is the process of finding a mate, so to speak whether that's companionship or whether it's romantic forever partnership. And I never considered otherwise. No one had ever discussed the art of doing that well. It was, you go to school, you learn things, you get a job, you be a decent person, right? You stay out of trouble with the police, you don't hurt other people. And then if you're with somebody that also does those things, everything's just going to be okay. That seems to be the message. You know, don't do the really bad stuff. Don't do the Ten Commandments stuff. And what I feel I discovered after my nine-year marriage ended 12-year relationship with my girlfriend, fiance, wife, was that I fundamentally was missing like the data necessary to have executed it correctly. I didn't realize that immediately. I realized that after I went to work on trying to figure out what happened, like I did everything by the book, what happened? Finally, you know, felt like I had some sort of epiphany one day and I'm like, people don't teach you this. I don't mean to sound so like whiny about it and so like not responsible for what my life became because I absolutely was responsible. I'm just like, I feel as if I was shortchanged on the education side of relational skills. Then it occurred to me very quickly that it would seem that everyone else is too. Not everyone, right? That's like speaking in broad generalities. You know, if you'll forgive the like hyperbole that I tend to use when I speak, it seems like the vast, vast majority of people just are never taught. They're never handed 
a book or part of a discussion or part of a classroom, part of any training that says, these things will allow you to have happy, healthy adult relationships. It's just get a job, make money. That's it. And we're taught, don't cheat in your marriage. Try not to spend all the family money with the gambling addiction. Try not to go to the pub every night. But that isn't what you're talking about here, is it? Tell me about what you mean when you say about making the invisible visible and maybe share the story of what happened at the end of your marriage and how it took you by total surprise, didn't it? Yeah, no, it really did. And I'm glad you brought that up. In the context of like relationship crimes specifically, I would like sort of jokingly dub them like major marriage crimes. It's the cheating and it's the gambling addiction or the drug and alcohol addiction. Anything that's like overtly abusive, anything that like I feel like the average person default understands this isn't acceptable in like civilized society. This isn't an acceptable component of nobody got married and believed they could do that and everything would be okay afterward. I don't think that's not what I believe ends relationships. You know, what I've come to believe ends relationship are these so-called invisible things. You know, before I guess we get into like the nuance of that, you asked about the end of my marriage. You know, it was like a slow death. There was nothing like sudden or overly dramatic about it. It died like extremely slowly on the vine with me all along the way, sort of protesting. Nothing's wrong. Like, why is this happening? Like, why are you changing your mind is how it felt. You chose me. And in fact, and respectfully to her, I felt almost pressured as like a 24 year old to get married. And I didn't feel all the way ready for that. And I resented the implication a decade later that I was suddenly not good enough, having not undergone any like sort of significant personality or behavioral change. And it really frustrated me. And so what I've come to understand, I believe, is this idea that we erode trust very, very slowly in our relationships in a manner that I describe as like paper cuts or pinpricks. It's not like these overtly harmful things that just damage us. Certainly those things happen from time to time in various relationships, but I think the majority of them get sick slowly. It's in the form of a biting comment. It's in the form of someone had a bad day and the other person indicates it's their problem. Don't make your emotional experiences my problem. It's a toilet seat being left in a certain position or a dish by the sink or a failure to participate effectively when you bring a new baby home, particularly from dads, not to pick on us too much, but that tends to be the person sort of like failing to contribute in a meaningful way, certainly on the emotional side of things, particularly. We're at the ready to like have instructions from the new mom who also doesn't really know what she's doing, but we've taken zero responsibility for reading the books or preparing the household or being ready as like a default response to like get up in the middle of the night and do whatever we can. We're measured as being a cooperative, contributing, invested partner in parenting and or marriage. And I just think these are the little things that, and I know people listening will be like, yeah, that's gross. I've experienced that and it's ugly. When you're the oblivious guy, just sort of like learning how to be an adult, I'm not defending this, but I am saying I truly believe that these are decent humans that don't realize the harm that's being caused to the other, which is what I think is so terrifying about this, that it's like nobody gave them the rule book that said, you can't do these things. It's not on the list of bad things we were taught to not do. And that, I think, is the danger. So I think the average relationship, good guy, hurts, 
good, statistically speaking, female and heteros relationships. And trust dies very, very slowly through a series of essentially misunderstandings. And I find that to be like this really tragic idea in a world where things are hard to be an adult and two people promising to love and support and honor one another all the days of their lives and actually meaning it, but then failing to execute it because they don't even know what ingredients they need to make it work is a sad story to me. I love it how you say the things that actually end up destroying our relationships and marriages are seemingly unimportant. I think so. I don't want to use the word famous with me because I'm anything but in terms of relativism, my famous in air quotes example is the dish by the sink. And I wrote this article in 2016 called She Divorced Me Because I Left Dishes by the Sink. It was a very popular thing and was read several millions of times and people still miss the point. <laughs> like people still think it's this fundamental like sort of preference for whether like a dish should be by the sink or not. Instead of recognizing what I believe is the core lesson that I didn't learn in my marriage. And that is every time my wife walked into the kitchen to find the dish left by the sink, it was specifically a drinking glass left by the sink that I'd leave there. She was reminded once again that I will always do what I think and what I feel, even at her expense. I would have never agreed to that idea. I would have never said, no, I'm going to do whatever I want, even if it hurts my wife. I would have never thought it or said it. But my actions absolutely mathematically resulted in that experience for her. And I failed to accept any responsibility for it. It wasn't my job to stop putting the glass there. It was my wife's job to stop thinking it mattered, to stop caring about it, to stop feeling hurt by it. And I think it's that dynamic. And just insert any little conflict, any like miniature betrayal or conflict in domestic households or marriages or shared lives of any kind. Insert any other example in place of that glass. And to me, that's the dynamic. It's one person failing to honor the things that matter to somebody else. It's not really relevant what that thing is. We lose trust from another person when we demonstrate we will not respect and honor the things that matter to you. If we don't agree, they should matter to you. In my experience, men, sadly, are the ones telling their partners that they are not allowed to think and feel the things that they think and feel, apparently, because we find it such an inconvenience, I suppose. You talk about this so brilliantly because, you know, I've experienced this a bit as well. It's like you share how before you came to this sort of, I guess, higher level of awareness or consciousness, you could call it about what was really going on. You would be thinking, why is she so annoyed about the glass? Can she not see that I'm a great guy? I'm a good husband. You know, I'm doing all this stuff for us. I'm not cheating and I'm showing up. And, and yet, why is she so annoyed? And I think that that is a really common response of mainly men, we're going to have to talk in such generalizations, but mainly men not understanding that it's about so much more than the glass by the sink. Tell me about that, how you used to feel about it, and then what you understand about it now on a way deeper level. Of course, the glass is a metaphor for consideration and empathy and care and doing something that you think is stupid just because the person you love thinks it's important. That's really what it's about, isn't it? That's what love is. Exactly. That's what love is. And I think there's room for compromise and disagreement, but there's a line where valuing someone else and respecting. And I think the word pain is very important. This isn't a, a minor inconvenience. It begins to hurt after years. This notion of, I don't matter enough for this person to care for me in this way. 
I can't trust them to do it. They refuse. They value what they think and feel and what they want to do so much more than they value me. And that idea generates pain over time. It generates disconnection and loneliness and abandonment. And that's what, in my experience, ends relationships. I thought the glass was absurd. The thinking I believe goes, I've been alive for X number of years. And at the time, it would have been nearly 30. I've experienced things good and bad. I have enough data to indicate a glass sitting by the sink doesn't hurt people. It's not a problem. There's a lot of bad stuff in the world. Really, really awful, horrendous things happening to humans out there. And this isn't one of them. It's just not. And that's how I thought about it. And I was like, I'm not going to give you audience to elevate this to like this big global problem. It was such like a selfish sort of shitty me first way to talk about it. Forgive me. Sorry for the off color language. It's not okay. That was akin to me handing somebody a piece of food with nuts in it that has like a severe, potentially fatal nut allergy. And then acting like they're weak for, you know, me like putting them in harm's way. We don't get to tell people, I mean, we do, we can do what we want. I certainly thought I had license to do it. We don't get to maintain trust afterwards when we continually tell people that the experiences they have are not something you think is valid. I mean, that was essentially like the work because I had to sort of like mentally come around to this idea first. That had to be step one is that other human beings are allowed to experience the world differently than me. And if I value this notion of being a good person, earning their trust and showing up effectively for them, I have to honor the things that they experience, not just what I think they should, because obviously there's so much you don't know. And it took me entirely too many years to realize just how ignorant and how blind I was to the plight of other humans that have diverse life experiences from me. That's like a pathetic idea and I'm embarrassed about it, but it is the math result of my upbringing. And I apologize to everybody who suffered from it. The average relationship, I think we have this nasty habit of viewing the world through our own first person lenses and then judging other people's reactions that are divergent from ours as being abnormal or wrong or unfair somehow. And then we try to correct those. And in my coaching work today, I just focus on the notion of like two ideas, two habits specifically. And you said what I think is the magic word first, and it's consideration. It was born out of me asking my social media audience years ago, what are the biggest pain points in your relationship? And because mostly women are engaging with relationship content on the internet, I mostly got responses from women, probably nine out of 10. The average wife and mother used the word consideration. I want to feel considered by my husband or by my boyfriend or by my fiance or by my partner when I make decisions, like when he makes decisions. And I didn't know what that meant. Considered to me felt like being polite, like using like good manners or thoughtfulness. And it turns out that's not radically divergent from what it actually is, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And what I've come to talk about in like my coaching work with clients is this idea, is that the average wife and mother that I talk to thinks the following way, although I'm sort of like applying the concept and putting words in their mouth, but I think they would all subscribe to the idea. And I think about it like algebra, basic high school algebra. And that is, I am a factor in the math equation I use to make a decision. Like every day, this is the wife and mother speaking. My husband is another factor, another variable, if you will. And the math equation I use to make decisions every day, each of my children, my pets, the things that matter to me, the things in our shared domestic lives together, I never fail to calculate for me, for him, for our children, for our pets, for all of the things that need done. That is my default setting response day in and day out to make sure that our lives function as they do. 
And it's really, really nuanced in terms of clothing selections for children and dietary needs for everybody, whether it's wants or needs, where everybody likes to go on vacation. The big one for me, I feel like is calendars and scheduling and just juggling everything so that everybody gets to where they need to be on time and nobody's inconvenienced by mom, which is like orchestrating the whole show most of the time. And in my experience, like the average like family, and then they're married to a man who doesn't do that. They're like, he's a good person. He loves me. He's a great father, loves his kids, but there's sufficient evidence that he's the only factor or variable he uses to make decisions, not always, but just a lot. And we've had several discussions about it over the years, and we end up being like frustrated or hurt or forgotten in some way by it. And I, we, the family tell them, but it still continues to happen. And so I can only conclude the following. I'm married to somebody who knows what I need and fails to deliver it on purpose because he doesn't feel like it, because he doesn't care, because it doesn't matter to him. That's the worst thing that can be true here. And the best thing that can be true is I'm married to somebody who doesn't think about me at all. (laughs) The best outcome here is that I'm married to somebody where a huge percentage of the day, I am not even on his radar as someone who matters. And that combined with little moments of like inconsideration and disconnection at home throughout the course of many months and years creates this environment of like disconnection and loneliness and feeling like the phrase I've heard over and over again from my former spouse and from many married women is this idea of, I feel alone in my marriage. I feel like I'm the only participant in it. And I think that's exacerbated dramatically by parenting. If that trend continues when children are brought into the household, that to me, what consideration looks like is twofold. I have to always, always include my spouse, my partner, whoever, whoever I crave trust with in this world. It doesn't have to be a romantic or intimate relationship. I just have to calculate for them. I have to calculate for their experience and then adjust what I'm doing and saying accordingly in order to accommodate for this thing that I understand about them. I have to remember essentially to include them. I also have to do it in a nuance. I have to be right. You know, going back to that like fatal nut allergy, if it's like somebody wants a cookie, can I give them a cookie that's not going to hurt them afterwards? Can I exercise that level of care? And so it's not just this notion of like including our partners in our decision-making process. We have to sort of in the algebraic way, we have to solve for the variable in like an accurate way. And I think the simple way to talk about that's knowing our spouse, like knowing them. I was with my son's mother for 12 years. I would argue that I didn't know her very well in those really nuanced ways. I couldn't explain to you why if she didn't like a movie and I did or vice versa, and we had like a funny little like kind of argument about it afterwards, I couldn't tell you why she didn't like that conversation. She didn't like it. I've actually never said this out loud before, but we would do that. We'd disagree about like a song or a movie and we'd have just this like most simple of little disagreements. I've had a million of them with like my guy friends and stuff. No harm, no foul afterwards. Everybody's fine. But she like didn't like it. It felt like disrespectful to her. And I suspect it's this idea of you never let me own my opinions. You never let me own my feelings. I suspect it's a continuation of that. But back then, I didn't know. I didn't fundamentally understand what was going on inside her. And there was elements of psychology that happened in all of this. And I don't profess to be particularly knowledgeable about it. But I'm aware that stuff happens to us in our childhood that helps sort of form us and inform our personalities and our emotional impulses and things like that. And then when life happens as an adult, some of those things trigger feelings, good and bad. And I sure wish I would have learned 
that maybe when her older brother picked on her when she was a little kid, it felt a certain way. She was the baby in the family. So maybe she felt like she didn't have a voice sometimes. And maybe in our household, she felt like I didn't give her a voice sometimes. And it's like learning how to factor things like that in. Context is so critical to understand why things happen or why people do what they do. And I never did that work ever. So did I know my wife? I was familiar with her. I was comfortable with her. But did I know her? Not enough to earn her trust over the long term, it turns out. And I think that's the work that people don't understand are necessary for like trust and intimacy, for safety in a relationship to be maintained for many years. You know, I learned this a while back that all humans have three core needs from the moment we're born to the moment we die, which is to be seen, to be heard and to be validated. And you can really see how if we were taught that about our relationships, regardless of what we think about what's going on, as you say, we need to be seen. I can see that really upsets you to be heard. Tell me what's going on then to be validated. Yeah, I get that. In a way, it's so simple. And yet it's not. It's not. And you can see how what you were describing, you know, the loneliness that so many mothers in particular feel in their marriages from picking up all of that invisible labor. And then they walk in. I've had this you know, juggling everyone else's needs, a business, a kids, da, 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 walk in. And, you know, at times my husband who is, you know, lovely and kind and an amazing parent, but sometimes doesn't consider me will be like, oh, I'm just popping out, just popping out. I'm like, well, hang on a minute. It's just those little moments of not being able to step into my world for a moment. And I feel like that is the absolute key. And and I feel like sometimes the more that we ask our partners to step into our world, and you describe this so beautifully, often the more that's invalidated. And then the further away we start to feel. Tell me about that invalidation. You call it the triple threat, don't you? Tell us about that. I think it's so important. In my coaching work, it's my highest priority. So we just finished talking about consideration. And I think that's the most critical foundational idea anybody can have in a relationship is I must always, not sometimes, be calculating for the experiences of my partner relative to what I'm doing or not doing. I have to be aware of that. I have to be aware of how what I'm doing or not doing rolls downhill and impacts them because that can cause pain, not on purpose, not because we're jerks, just because we're not paying attention. And it's like, how long are they to tolerate this blindness that we have that results in harm for them somehow? Even if that harm is perceived to be minor, like a glass by the sink or the toilet seat being left in a particular position or a piece of laundry being thrown in a floor where somebody else didn't like it, but we didn't really care. That precipitates conversation usually. Usually somebody feels hurt, inconvenienced or otherwise said, and it doesn't even have to be by us. It can be any life event can trigger a negative experience for somebody. And as a relationship partner today, I crave being the human being that she wants to come and tell, include in whatever she's dealing with. I absolutely want that. I understand how fundamental it is for our relationship to be cohesive and intimate and all of the things. But I think most importantly, lasting to actually stand the test of time. I have to be that person to them, but I wasn't. And the reason why is because I was a serial invalidator. And what that looked like sort of mechanically in my marriage, you brought up this notion of like the invalidation triple threat. I just believe there's sort of three ways that we do this all the time, just on autopilot. And I think most people are probably guilty of it from time to time. But I do think men often in the context of romantic relationships don't recognize the harm that's caused 
between them and their partner when this is the condition in the relationship. And what it looked like in my life is my wife would come to me just out of nowhere, right? Because we're busy minding our own business, going about our days, doing whatever we're doing. And then our wife interrupts this default state of being to communicate that something's wrong. And so my wife would say, hey, Matt, this bad thing happened. I'm feeling bad about it. And version one of the way I would invalidate my wife would be, I didn't agree with whatever she perceived to have happened. Her take on the situation, I thought was inaccurate somehow. And so I would correct it. I'd be like, wait a minute, that's not even what happened. (laughs) This is what happened. And so I would try to correct my wife's intellectual experience with whatever had just occurred. The math result is your feelings don't matter because it's based on something that didn't even occur. Version one. Version two, my wife walks in the room and says, I'm mad, a bad thing happened. I feel bad about it. And this time I completely agree 100% with everything she just described as having had happened. This time I'm an intellectual like lockstep with her, but now I'm confused about why she feels the way she feels about it. Now her emotional calibration is somehow broken or wrong or unfair. She's hypersensitive or overreacting. And I say so. I'm like, why are you making such a big deal out of this thing that isn't that important? That's version two. Version three is sort of classic defensiveness. My wife would say, Matt, a bad thing happened. You know, you did this. I feel bad about it. And I'd say, wait a minute. Like, let me explain. Like, if you understand what I was thinking, what I was doing, what I was trying to do, what I believed at the time, you won't be mad at me anymore. I won't be the bad guy anymore. You'll understand that this was all just a huge misunderstanding. The math result of these three, what I believe are habitual response patterns by people Because I don't think anybody is attempting to literally communicate your feelings and experiences don't matter to me. It's just what happens as like a result of like this conversation. Here's what my wife learned. This is like the bottom line. And this is what everybody learns in their relationships. If I don't agree that you should think what you think, or if I don't agree that you should feel what you feel, then I'm going to communicate, not specifically, but the implications there that you're either stupid, crazy, weak, hypersensitive, dramatic, or regardless of any of those things, it's your problem because I was justified in doing whatever I was doing. Regardless of how you feel about it, I was right to do what I did. And when we communicate those notions repeatedly thousands of times over many years together, the other person comes to that realization. If Matt doesn't think I should think what I think or feel what I feel, he implies that I'm stupid or that I'm weak or that I'm crazy or that no matter what, he's going to do whatever he wants anyway. Therefore, I don't trust him anymore. I don't think he's bad. I just can't trust him with the things that matter to me. I think we do that in situations that are very minor, so to speak, small. I don't mean to to judge them to be minor because they are it turns out the big things in relationships. But if we can all agree that they're so-called tiny betrayals, what I do think most commonly happens in relationships is finally the big stuff happens. A parent dies, a best friend dies, we get sick, something awful happens. And we don't have safety and trust secured in the relationship because the trend is always, I don't make you feel safe. I don't comfort you when something bad's going on and you come to me with it. The math result of you talking to me about life's hardships is you feel worse afterward. So a parent dies and then suddenly husband doesn't provide comfort to me. My mom does. My sister does. My best friend does. All these people do. My husband doesn't. And then massive like distance 
starts to like emerge in relationships with the huge breaks and you know husband feels bad and abandoned and left out but he like made the bed without knowing it again i think it's a really sad story because i think it's fundamentally an awareness issue nobody tells you any of this nobody teaches you and so i'm trying to have this conversation with as many people usually man as possible because i want them to recognize that this is probably what's happening in their relationships and it's as simple as developing sort of nuanced relational habits around these things. This ad is organised and funded by Sanofi's Together Against RSV campaign. You might be thinking, what is RSV, Zoe? And I've just been learning all about it. So let me tell you. Respiratory syncytial virus, easy for me to say, or RSV as it's more commonly known, is a really common virus that causes infection in the lower part of the respiratory system in babies and children. In fact, 90% of all children, by the time they reach two, will unfortunately experience a respiratory virus. But the good news is that most RSV illnesses are mild and clear upon their own. But unfortunately, some cases can be more serious. Bronchitis and pneumonia are types of these infections that you might have heard of that are often caused by RSV. In fact, when Jessie was little, about eight months, she had quite severe bronchitis. And I do wish I'd known more about it and how to manage it before it happened. So if you want to get yourself clued up on RSV, what it is, what can be done to prevent it and how to spot the signs and symptoms so that you can be better prepared with your children, then you can visit Sanofi's Together Against RSV website for further information www.togetherAgainstRSV.com and there you'll find loads of helpful advice about infant RSV. Back to the episode. When I was reading the book and diving into your work, I was thinking, you know, everyone knows if you ask someone what's important in a marriage, that word intimacy would come up. Someone would say, well, we have to be intimate. I think people think that's about physical relationship or how much sex you make. I don't think that at all now. I think intimacy is can I bring something that's on the inside of me that I might be embarrassed to say really upset me? Can I actually bring that to you? And can you hold that for me? And if you can't, I'm going to be slowly edging away. And then the intimacy goes and then everything else crumbles, doesn't it? And I've had experience of this where, you know, I've bought things to my husband and said, you know, that thing that you said when we were in front of people the other day, that made me feel really embarrassed. I felt like you were sort of taking the piss out of me and he's done that thing. Like we've talked about it since. And I think he gets it, but he's done that thing. He's like, what? That don't be ridiculous. It's like, ah, am I safe to bring my insights to you? Isn't that like the core of a good lasting, healthy marriage? Can I bring the stuff that might be embarrassing to me or really vulnerable to me? The little things, can I bring those to you? And can you hold those with love and tenderness? Can you step into my experience for a moment? I think it's that. Whether it's a glass, it doesn't matter, does it? That's a metaphor for can I bring the stuff that bothers me about you and life to you? And can you listen? Can you hear me? It's really important. And I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the ideas we haven't really talked about, but I've mentioned the word a couple of times, is this notion of safety. I think a lot of, again, I'm sorry that I'm making this so gendered because I don't like it because I don't think gender stereotypes are useful particularly, but it is how I sort of observe it. A lot of men fail to recognize like the danger or the absence of safety in these nuanced emotional ways and relationships. And I think they fail to understand. And intimacy is a good word because so many men 
associate in my experience, in my coaching work specifically, this idea of intimacy with like physical intimacy specifically. They crave that. And I've read plenty of people infinitely smarter than me say a lot of men connect emotionally with their romantic partners via the physical intimacy process. And I understand. So they crave it and it feels awful and lonely, not just in like a gross base mammal needs way, but in a legitimate human connection way when they feel rejected or denied like that on a case-by-case basis. And what I talk to so many guys about is this idea that what's happened is the marriage, the relationship has become unsafe. I love the Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid as a way to think about this. Because for anybody who doesn't remember, level one of the pyramid is basic needs, air, food, water, shelter. We have to acquire those things in order to graduate to level two of the human needs pyramid. And the whole point is to like move our way up to the top of the pyramid where we're going to be living our best lives. And so we get air, food, water, shelter. We're good. We move up level two of the pyramid as we have to achieve safety. And that means we're not diagnosed with a deadly illness. Our money didn't go away in a stock market crash. A bear isn't chasing us, things like that. And it can also be this more nuanced notion of like emotional safety in the context of a relationship. These invisible things that happen, and these so-called invisible things happen in relationships, these ways in which we demonstrate ourselves to be unreliable emotionally, where again, I communicate, it has to matter to me, independent of you, for me to do anything that feels like love and care for you becomes the dynamic even though I think that idea is missing from like his head usually, but a lack of safety emerges. Up the pyramid one level is belonging and togetherness and family and friends and community and and all of the things we crave as humans where we want involvement and we want friendships and we want to be part of families and groups and tribes and things like that. And I truly believe like dating and like physical intimacy live up on level three. It's all of this stuff we did as young single people when we first became attracted and then we went out in the world and explored our relationship together. We did level three things. Safety was a non-issue. Safety didn't come into play until years into the relationship after it had been slowly eroded. And what I think happens is safety goes away. Wife, girlfriend lives on level two of the pyramid. He's still up on level three. He doesn't feel unsafe yet. And he's trying to connect with his relationship partner in a physically intimate or dating or fun way on like level three of the pyramid, but she's still like, I'm not safe. So many guys get so frustrated by she changed. She doesn't want to have fun anymore. She rejects me constantly. And that often like precipitates the end of a relationship because they never reconnect there. He never understands that achieving safety again is like got to be the highest priority. And I don't know. I don't think that she has any responsibility necessarily in that. I may be effective communication to the best of her ability, but usually she's been trying for years and it hasn't worked out very well. I find that to be the most common pattern. So brilliant the way that you describe that. And it just makes so much sense. I love putting complex things in a simple model like that because I think it just clicks, doesn't it? You mentioned comfort and I wanted to talk about this because what I can see in this dynamic is that the partner who is feeling invalidated, not heard, is sitting in discomfort, is trying to say, you're not hearing me. Why are you not putting the glass away? Why are you not thinking of me? And the other partner is like, oh, there's nothing going on. What's up? You know, your moment of discomfort came when she went, I'm leaving. Before you get to that point, is there anything that we can do as the partner, normally the female, 
to increase that level of discomfort, to incite that change. Because I'm super conscious that we cannot change our partners. We can't. We can create an environment for change. And I'm wondering, particularly in the coaching way that you do, how does that change happen without that big divorce, separation, threat of those things even? I don't have an answer. I don't. I'm really sorry. This is, uh, you've asked the scariest question I ever get asked in relationships, particularly from women who feel so frustrated by this dynamic. Like, what can I do? I get asked over and over again, Matt, what could she have said? I suppose somewhere out there is this magical combination of words she could have like strung together in a way that would have like resonated with me, but sort of unfair to like, she only knows how to like string words together the way she strings words together. She only knows how to feel the way she knows how to feel. My belief is that we have to hurt. We have to feel as uncomfortable as the partner that's been sitting in discomfort in order to like be motivated to take action. I find that to be a gross idea that reinforces this idea that I choose me over them. It's sort of a continuation of what I think and feel and my experiences are more important to me than my partners. But I still operate under this belief that it's like we don't know until we know. I did not know. I guess I would have told you that my wife was like being dramatic and overreacting. That's such a gross thing to say now in hindsight, knowing like everything I think that she was put through by me this constant sort of failure to show up for her. But I did not see the damage being caused, the pain being caused. I didn't know how to empathetically, like even just conjure up what it must've been like for her to feel that. I was just baffled that she could be sad or angry because of these things that seemed so inconsequential to me. And to me, that's the disconnect. And we have to find a way to communicate that actual pain, harm, discomfort is being experienced. It's on some figment of a weak person's imagination. It's a very real thing. And I don't know, I try to find a million ways to do it. For The only thing I know how to do is like offer analogies. I talk about sporting events like football games. And in America, we call it soccer, football over there. There's uh, the winning team, the losing team, the fans of those teams, and then the third party fan that doesn't care about either team. And so we have a model for an event taking place where after the result is over, Somebody wins, the fans are happy about it. Somebody loses, those fans are sad about it. We get it. Then we get that those people care, like, and they experience it negatively, and those people experience positively. And it's like really obvious to us why that is. And I don't understand why we can't apply that conceptually to like these experiences, these, these little invisible moments in our lives, like why we can't accept that. Just as fans of a winning team are happy and fans of a losing team, even though they all witnessed the exact same moment, respond emotionally differently to it. Why can't we grant others the ability to experience a moment differently than us? And just sort of like intellectually understand that it's not somehow bizarre or illogical for that to have occurred. Because that was always, I think, the default assumption is that it's not logical for you to think and feel about this scenario so divergent from the way that I think and feel about it. Because I know I'm not wrong. Because I know I'm not bad. Because I know I'm not mean. Because I know I'm not insensitive, although we are because we're blind and idiots. If you were going to take you know, what you know now and what you've uncovered and what you've learned and what you've assimilated back into your marriage, what would you be doing differently? What questions would you be asking? How would you be handling those invisible moments? I think the most important idea for me, the way that I have to think about it is I'm not going to leave evidence 
which is what the glass by the sink was, which is what a piece of laundry on the bedroom furniture was. I'm not going to leave evidence that the things that matter to her don't matter to me, that I will always choose me over her. And that's done again in our blind spots, but the work has to be eliminating the blind spots because I don't even want to accidentally, right? It's not about whether I do it on purpose or not. The math results the same. Here's evidence that you don't matter enough to me to like modify the way that I do things. We always just got stuck there, but today we wouldn't get stuck there. And the way I would successfully do that is I used to judge my wife. She'd say, this matters to me. And I judged that she was wrong for it to matter. Essentially, what I wish I'd done, and if I'd been 43 as I am now, I would get curious. It would trigger my curiosity. Why is it that something that seems so silly and benign to me is affecting her? I really want to know, like genuinely want to know. And if I make room for that conversation to take place, and I truly see and hear my wife explain to me, here's why this is bad for me. I just believe I can learn like a little bit about her. And that's something I can take forward in my life with me and start handling with care this previously invisible, small thing. It's no longer invisible and small. It's a detail that every single time she encounters it, she'll discover that I care. Here's the example that I offer people today in my coaching work in real time. I date somebody who has a severe gluten allergy. Like she gets really sick, bad sick, like almost can't work sick for a couple of days if she gets like a granule of weed in her system. And for my entire life, eating bread, pizza crust or pasta or whatever, it was fine. I didn't get sick by it. It was invisible to me. So I had to learn how to care about like wheat, like anything. I can't touch bread, grab a glass, hand her the glass and have it not be a threat to her safety. So I am like sanitizing surfaces and door handles and cabinet handles and refrigerator door handles and water faucets, like before she comes over and things like that. And she knows that I do this. We go to restaurants and I like advocate for her like diet or if we went to a friend's house and they were preparing dinner, I would communicate effectively that she has some dietary restrictions that truly matter, like medically speaking. And she sees me take something that doesn't adversely affect me, but that does adversely affect her and sees me handle it with care over and over and over again, vigilantly. And it feels like being cared for. It feels like she can trust me, like she can be safe with me. And for me, that's like a really solid real world example today in real time of what the work I think looks like. And I'm like, can we just apply this to more nebulous concepts like emotional experiences and emotional safety? Can we apply that same level of care with all of these other invisible things? It doesn't matter if we don't understand it. I don't understand what it feels like to eat a piece of bread and have it make me sick. I don't have to. I just have to care for her. And this is how I do it. We don't have to know why the piece of laundry next to the laundry basket causes the emotional reaction that it might cause in our relationship partner. But if we can demonstrate care and respect for the things that matter to other people, I believe we can have safety and trust that keeps us together for the long haul. I think it's beautiful. And then that trickles down, obviously, to our children and models healthy relationships for them. It keeps a cohesive family unit in place for them. I just think that the positives are, are really obvious. And as you were speaking, I was thinking, yes, because, you know, this is something that I learned and it's so simple, but it is life-changing that love is a verb. It's an action. It's something you do in 
action in service of another. It's not a noun. It's not like a thing. And I wonder if for men, it's more, well, of course I love you. I married you. And I might work more than you outside the home to provide all of this for us. Is it not evident that I love you? Forgetting, of course, that actually staying in a healthy, committed marriage or long-term relationship is every day, like remembering that love is an action. And sometimes that action might be putting your glass in the dishwasher, but that's what it's really about, isn't it? It's never about the glass or the laundry or the, you know, picking the kids up from school. It's showing like, I love you enough to put myself out in order to demonstrate that I love and care for you. And I think it's that, isn't it? That when that's just perpetually forgotten over thousands, if not millions of instances, it's just that gradual, as you said, right at the top of the conversation, like withering on the vine. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly how I used to think about it. I thought that I sufficiently worked hard. I thought that I'd demonstrate my love and commitment to her by agreeing to marry her for the rest of my life, especially in light of the fact that I felt somewhat pressured to do so. And the choice was, do I want to do this thing that I don't feel all the way ready for, or do I want to lose her? And it was like, no, no question. I'm in this. I'm doing it. And I resented the implication that I didn't love her just because I didn't agree that something, you know, it, for me, I said, I shouldn't have to agree with you all the time, you know, in order to like demonstrate that you're loved. I'm like, I'm an adult. You're an adult. We're allowed to like not think the same way, feel the same way about things. And that's true. Everybody is absolutely allowed to think and feel differently about things. It's not what that is. It's not what consideration and validation should not be conflated with agreement and feeling exactly the same as someone else. It is calculating for the divergent experience someone else might have and taking steps to protect them from it, as I described with the gluten thing, or as I described with the child that might have like the nut allergy, where it's like, I want to give all the little kids at this party cookies, but I'm not going to have things that have nuts in it because I'm going to calculate for the possibility that somebody could be hurt by it or whatever. You know, in a real world scenario, you'd communicate with parents and stuff about that. It's such an important point, a really important point, this idea between validation and agreeing. Because it's like saying, I don't agree that this thing that is hurting you is a big deal, but I'm going to hear you and I'm going to validate it. You know, surely like a marker of maturity is that we can hold duality. Like we can hold, I don't agree with you, but I can still validate that for you. I do that for my kids all the time. Oh my gosh, like that must be so hard that, you know, you wanted the blue cup and you got the... Clearly, I don't think it's an issue. I don't give a shit about which cup I'm drinking from, but I'm validating that because I love them and I, and I want them to feel seen and heard by me. And it's, can we elevate that, isn't it, into our relationships and our partnerships? I wanted to ask you about your coaching that you do. Are there moments when you're coaching, I'm guessing a man who might be on the brink of divorce or post-divorce, are there any moments when they particularly get that penny drop, aha moment? Have you noticed a pattern of that where they go, ah, I get it now. What is it that facilitates that? For me specifically, we've done it in this conversation a couple of times. We did it with validation. We did it with consideration. It's the moment when I talk about the three distinct ways that I habitually invalidated my wife and then what that conclusion was that my wife ultimately learned that what that truly looks and feels like to her is... Matt has to agree. He has to agree with me. He has to agree that I'm allowed to think what I think and that I'm allowed to feel what I feel in order for him to behave in a manner that feels like being loved and being cared for. If he doesn't agree that I should think what I think or feel what I feel, his behavior 
is nothing like feeling loved and cared for. That's what my wife learned. That hits guys pretty hard usually because they all recognize that they have very similar habitual patterns. Sometimes it's just like two of the three. Defensiveness almost always. (laughs) Defensiveness is almost always there as an invalidating sort of like habitual response pattern in relationships. And then the consideration thing. When we get to the place where we talked about this idea of the average wife and mother thinking, I'm married to somebody where the best case scenario is they don't even think about me at all. And then these guys are thinking about their days at work while their wives are perhaps at their jobs or perhaps home with children or wherever they may be and realize that there's all of this time that goes by where you're right. She wasn't even like on my radar. And it's like, well, that may or may not matter to her. That may or may not. But if it does matter, if there's feelings of loneliness and disconnection, then the work becomes interrupting those periods of time. I understand you're locked in at work and you're busy and things like that. But if you value your relationship, quick coaching anecdote, I had a guy who one of her family members, or I don't remember if it was a parent or a sibling, I'm embarrassed about this. They didn't come home one night because they were in a car accident when they were younger. And they were trying to get a hold of them and they couldn't. And it just really stuck with her. And then now, as I don't know how old, forgive me, I don't remember how old they are. But when he's gone for a long period of time and he doesn't answer, she gets like that triggered panicky feeling. And what used to happen is he would go play in like a basketball league, like two nights a week. And there'd be these huge amounts of time where like he's on the basketball court and his phone's in like a gym bag or something. And she can't reach him or anything like that. And he just was so frustrated that she was like upset with him. And he just finally like understood this idea of, listen, just set yourself on a shelf for a moment and imagine this young woman who lost somebody. It's She loves you. The reason she's hurt is because she loves you and wants to be with you and wants you to be okay. Can you please give her the gift? of alleviating her of that anxiety and that fear and that worry. Can you just take a moment throughout your day and throughout the time when you're not with her to just check in, give her proof of life, you know, tell her you're thinking about her and care about her and discuss what to do for dinner, whatever. And he really, I don't know why it took me having that conversation with him for him to like realize that it's kind of in my estimation, slightly pathetic that it did. And I don't mean as a judgment of him. I mean, as a, referendum on all of our blind spots. But started to do that work. And I think that created an environment of safety that was a lot better than what was there for her before. The work is, my wife feels awful under certain circumstances. It's not my fault that she does. But can I care enough about her to do things to alleviate that? That was the work. The consideration was, I don't forget. And so I'm going to just check in with enough frequency that you don't have to feel the stress and fear and anxiety that you sometimes feel when huge amounts of time go by where you can't get a hold of me or whatever. And anyway, I just think that's like an important notion. I suspect that having listened to this conversation, lots of my listeners who are predominantly women and mothers are going to forward this episode to their partners. And if they've done that, what would you want the partners who might have been forwarded this episode? What would you want them to hear? specifically? Is there a soundbite or a sentence or something that you really want them to hear before we close? I talked about the idea of the evidence. I think that I want to double down on that idea one more time 
I so desperately wanted to be and hope that husbands and fathers want to be the kind of people that their romantic partners, that their wives calculate, their children, whoever calculate to be someone who loves them and respects them. We all think that we love and respect and honor and care for us. That's our like default belief. But we have to think about the math result of what happens on the other side of our words and our actions. Sometimes we accidentally, not because we're awful humans, but because we've never felt the same way in the same situation is what I honestly believe it is. We've never felt hurt because of a toilet seat being left up or a piece of laundry being on the bedroom floor or working really hard and not answering a text or a phone call for three hours because we just got busy and tied up in a project at work or something or left a glass by the sink. It could honestly literally be anything. Or I made a joke at my wife or my partner's expense in front of our friends, something that I'm guilty of having done in my married life. And then scoffing at the notion that that could have been a negative experience for you when everybody else in the room was having a good time and nobody could have ever thought anything bad about you based on what I'd said, right? You're not allowed to think and feel what you think and feel because I know better than you. It's not what we mean, but it's what's conveyed over and over and over and over again. And I just beg people to want to be somebody who does not leave evidence verbally or behaviorally that communicates the things that harm you or the things that make your life joyful and safe and abundantly good are not things I'm going to bother with, are not things that I'm going to participate in because your emotional experiences aren't my problem. That's on you to figure out. People are allowed to do and say those things if they really want to. I simply posit that you will lose safety and trust in the relationship if that's the choice that you make. And so I'm not a marriage advocate. You don't have to be married if you don't want to be. But most people I encounter want their marriages and their families to be cohesive and succeed. And to me, this is the magic idea is I will not be somebody who behaves or speaks in a manner that my wife can perceive to mean you don't matter to me and the things you think and feel are not my problem or responsibility. But that's exactly what I conveyed over and over again without realizing that that's what I was conveying. Thank you for that. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? You talked about being seen. And I think being seen is the powerful idea with mothers. The amount of sacrifice, I talked to this with a female, about this with a female client yesterday, in fact, the amount of sacrifice that mothers make for their children, for their families. And it goes so much deeper than just, I'm home and I'm dedicating so much of my energy to keeping my children clothed and fed and alive and educated. It's like so many people sacrificed the dream of who they wanted to be when they grew up in order to love behaviorally their children and their families. They do it so that their husband can continue to go do the things that their partner can continue to go do the things they do in their professional lives. And so that their children can have the best lives possible. And they do it truly in the most like selfless way possible, just to like lift everyone else up and then to be invisible and unappreciated and disrespected. And what do you have to complain about? You get to stay home all day as a default response to anything that might be perceived as a complaint or a grievance about something going on in their lives. Fortunately, I didn't really do and say things like that to my wife. 
she absolutely was invisible to me as a mother in terms of me failing to participate effectively and demonstrate the true level of like gratitude and appreciation I had for her in terms of the care for our son. But she still like was a busy professional and that probably helped me from saying and doing a lot of the awful things that I could have otherwise done. But I know that this is a show called Mother Kind, but it's a very real like condition in families and relationships that mothers and the labor of love that they offer every single day is invisible to so many people. And I think that mothers will forgive their children. And I think it's really, really, really difficult to forgive their adult partners when they essentially do the same things that their children are doing in the context of like taking it for granted and making life harder for mom. That's a really beautiful, powerful and poignant answer. And I think the same. I think if mothers could be seen in our intimate relationships and on a societal level, it's like we're almost invisible at every level, what we do and the sacrifice. And yeah, it's a beautiful answer. And I wonder if my listeners will agree there's something really powerful about hearing it from a man. You know, I, I speak to thousands of women and mothers about this all the time, but there's something about hearing it from the other side that just touched my heart that little bit deeper. So thank you. I've absolutely loved this episode. Thank you for your work in the world. I think we need to somehow get your work to every into every marriage in the world. It would be transformational. Where can people find out a bit more about you, about the book, about the work that you do in the world? The book is called This Is How Your Marriage Ends, A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships. It's available, I think, at more or less every major retailer, certainly online. And uh, my home on the internet is matthewfray.com, F-R-A-Y, Frey. I'm also on various social channels, but I've been doing an abhorrent job lately of <laughs> keeping up with that. I don't have like a person that like helps me with things because of the way my brain works and I work. I, I could really use some team involvement and it's something I'm working on. But anyway, I can be found in all those places and I'd be delighted if anybody wanted to check it out further. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm super grateful to have been here. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 